I'm probably going to come across as in the minority here, but I didn't really care for this episode. No, don't mistake me. I don't think it's terrible or awful or anything like that. But I do look at this episode like, eh, okay. I also don't have much to say about it. It's kind of a fairly one-note, obvious episode. I have a couple notes, and I will talk about those, but otherwise, I got nothing. I will give credit on one point on this episode. They do bother to show... How do I put this? Not so much a new dimension as a new execution of Kai Wynn's character. The fact that she is still the same self-serving, incredibly evil person, but she's doing so in less overt and... Well, that's not wrong. She's just doing so in different ways. It's different presentation of the same incredibly evil person. But uh, let's, let's, let's start by talking about the B-plot. So there's Jake, and there's Nog, and then Nog is uh, actively disgusting to the point of hysterical on his date. Now, I get that that's the point. In fact, if anything, I feel bad for the actor for having to behave this way on the date. That's just, wow. Now, I get that cultures are different. I really do. I understand that different people find different things to be socially acceptable. And Nog's opinion is that, well, I find your norms to be socially disgusting, right? And, of course, we find his norms to be socially disgusting. And that's a nice sentiment. It's really hard to pull off, in my opinion. It's one of those things that we all kind of intellectually can accept, but never really gels well. It's one of the reasons I've tried to move away from that type of writing in my own works. If you don't understand, this is something I've seen a lot of writers do. They will literally sit down and think of something that is gross or disgusting, and then they'll say, okay, this is the normal for insert alien race or culture here, and then they think we're disgusting. Ah, oh, we're not so different after all, right? My biggest problem with that type of storytelling is usually writers don't have any point to make there. That's It's like, hey, they think we're disgusting too. End statement, right? And that's kind of what they do here. Like, th th that's not true. They do one nice thing. It's the fact that the two want to stay friends, despite the fact that they find certain social customs of each other disgusting. I do like that. I, I, legitimately. Because that makes sense to me. You don't need to like everything your friends do, and you don't need to agree with everything your friends do, right? Now, obviously, there's limits if your friends are doing something that are what you consider to be morally repugnant or absolutely vile, then, yeah, you should probably stop being friends with them. But, for example, and I'll use a personal example here, if you have a friend who likes black licorice, that's not really a cause for stopping to be their friend, right? Now, I do actually have a friend. This is not a joke. He enjoys black licorice liqueur, specifically. And I have asked him to not drink it anywhere around me, because the smell of it will literally start triggering my gag reflex. And he respects that about me. But we both respect each other enough to not have any issues with our friendship just because he likes something that will quite literally make me vomit, right? So it's, it's still, there's still layers here. There's still shades of gray to that kind of a thing. And I do like that. Um, and it's, and it's, it's probably the only thing they do good with that side of the episode. That being said, this is an episode about Ber Vedic Burial dying horribly. Um, reclamate, uh, not re that's the wrong word. Uh, reconnection between the Bajorans and the Cardassians in an official political way. And Kira losing her lover. I mean, all of these are basically the same point. But my point is, in this incredibly dark episode, they have this weird side comedy plot. Now, here's the thing. 
One of the most common accepted ideas when it comes to writing dark fiction is that you have to have moments of levity or lightness or brightness within it. If you just have a non-stop cavalcade of doom, it starts to wear on the reader or viewer or player to the point where it stop, it not only does it stop having impact, which is bad, but it might actually detract from their enjoyment of the work. You need, it's, it's one of the reasons I talk so, so much about flow when it comes to the design of fiction. Flow is all about varying up the type and pace and presentation and style of storytelling so that there is enough variety to it that it doesn't overwhelm you or bore you or whatever. And good flow is, is difficult to get across. And in, the same thing that works in one case will not always work in another case because Empire Strikes Back from Star Wars had moments of levity and joking in, his, in side points here and there, and otherwise was an extremely dark story, right? So it's not just like the formula will automatically work. As I've said so many times, it's about how you apply the mechanic, not just the mechanic itself. So I think the inclusion of that little B-plot with Jake and Nog was not a good move. I think the B-plot itself was acceptable, like I said, but I don't think its inclusion here was a good idea. And apparently the writers agreed with me on that, so whatever. <sighs> Originally, they were going to kill off O'Brien here. Can you believe that? I mean, I can. Because apparently, the actor who plays O'Brien was thinking about going into movies more, and there was some discussion about that. But then, the actor who was playing O'Brien informed them, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, I'm, I'm not leaving. And so they're like, okay, well, we can't kill him off. Well, we have to kill off somebody. We've already got this script idea. And this is where I just start to laugh. I'm one of those people who believes firmly in the idea of not being afraid to write things. And what I mean by that is, if I wanted to kill off uh, Kira, and I felt, I, sh I shouldn't be afraid to do that, basically. Now, that being stated, if I'm going to kill off Kira, I'd better do something good with that. I had better have a specific and defined reason for killing her off and have that flow naturally from the narrative and really put my, my all into making that story as great as possible. It doesn't have to be some big dramatic send-off, but whatever I do, that has to be polished to a shine, right? And if you're catching my point, my point is the emphasis is on the story which leads to the death, not the death which predicates the story. Here's the problem with the construction of this episode. From everything I've read, the whole episode was like, okay, we kill off this guy. And that was the starting point. Kill off a guy. Well, hang, hang on. Maybe we should make this death matter. So we'll make the death be someone that we actually know and care about in order to artificially make it matter more. But really, this isn't a Vedic Burial story. This isn't really some big thing for him. This isn't really about him. They kill him off because... Well, there's actually two reasons. I'll get to the second reason in a moment. But they kill him off because we needed the audience to feel it. And in my opinion, that is a little bit too cheap. I feel like they should have... If they're going to kill Baral... I'm not saying they shouldn't kill off Baral. But I'm saying if they're going to, they should have walked into it knowing that this is the natural growth of his character arc rather than we want to make it hurt. Which brings me to my next point. The other reason they killed off Baral was because they didn't know what to do with his character. This is hysterical to me, by the way. 
In case you've been not paying attention, the character arc for Vedic Baral was actually pretty much planned out from back in Season 2 when he was first introduced. And the whole idea was Baral was going to have this whole arc where he falls in love with Kira, and he becomes this great religious leader and becomes the new Kai, and they had this whole... I shouldn't say that. They had a very vague outline. This is actually still the realm of rumor, by the way. I wasn't able to confirm this, but rumored to have a very vague outline about his character arc that was going to keep going after he became Kai. Well, if you're remembering... They just, they changed their mind on that. They said he's not Kai now. So instead, he's just still Vedic Baral, the chief advisor to Kai Win. Okay, well, what do we do with him now? And funnily enough, they complain that they have no idea what to do with him because they killed his character arc. So why not just kill him, too? I like Deep Space Nine, but the more I learn about the behind the scenes, the less I like the makers of it because I just disagree with so much of this stuff. I know, I've always known that Deep Space Nine has always been flying by the seat of its pants, but good lord, I, didn't, I had no idea how much they were flying by the seat of their pants. At least at this point. We're, it was season three. We're still like... <laughs> and in addition to that, you'll notice that, and I swear that I never really intended this to be a thing, but the hatred of recurring characters continues. Because they just killed off one of their only recurring characters. Oh my god, they just keep doing it. Ah. So anyways, a couple other side notes. They brought in uh, actual medical, uh, a medical consultant in order to polish up the dialogue in this episode to make it more real, more believable. And all I'm going to say is it shows. They actually are fairly down to earth with real life, actual medical knowledge in this episode. Um, and I think that's actually a really good thing. And it's something that I've said many, many times in many works of fiction, not just Star Trek. I really believe that science consultants, medical consultants, military consultants, political consultants, economic consultants, etc., biological consultants, physics consultants, you know, I legitimately think that having consultants come on and help make your, your work more believable by having an actual expert who actually understands this stuff help you to, to make this make sense and make it work is a good thing. It's something I've advocated many, many times. Uh, and it's something that if I was actually a large-scale writer, I would have absolutely no shame or hesitation in, in saying, okay, I need to write a military situation here, and I don't understand the specifics of the uses of artillery in 1812. So okay, I'm going to find a historian who's going to help me out with this, right? You know, I, do it, do it. And it, I say that because, in my opinion, every time Star Trek in specific actually brings on a consultant, it shows. And they don't do it all the time. So just pointing that out. Also, is it just me or is the red outfit still ridiculous? I know they kind of introduced those over in TNG. They just they look so stupid to me. Like, Bashir manages to make it work a little bit because he's Alexander Siddig, but... Eh. Um, the There's a bit in the beginning where they're literally rushing to the port to help with the disaster. I like that. I do legitimately like that. It's one of the the times where they've actually shown that an emergency is an emergency. I've talked about that many times over in Voyager, and I've even talked about that previously on Deep Space Nine in the episode Civil Defense just a few weeks ago. So it's nice to see them actually like, oh, God, we got to save him, we got to save him. Um, they never answer if it actually was sabotage or not. What do you guys think? Given the highly politically charged decision this is making, I could see at least three different organizations, maybe four, who would all be against this overall thing. So it wouldn't surprise me if at least one of them tried to sabotage this affair. What do you guys think? Honest question. Now, that leaves me only one thing left to talk about. And that would be 
the Borg. Actually, I have two things left to talk about. Sorry. The Borg... Hear me out. I really am going to talk about the Borg. One of the things that I've always liked about the Borg is that most of the reason why there's so much so much of a threat isn't because they just have bigger ships and more military hardware. It's because their tech level is so much more advanced than us in every field that they can use things that aren't normally considered military you know, technology in order to beat us. Like, assimilation is not a military technology. Not really. Not in the sense that a gun is, or a shield is, or, or you know, armor is, right? And I like the idea of the adaptable shield array thing, which is kind of a military attack. But, you know, my point being, their advantages come from their nature and their advancement. One of the things I always liked on Voyager, and I wish I had more of a chance to really discuss this, is the way how the Doctor and Seven both advanced medical science significant leaps forward by basically repurposing and reusing Borg technology with pre-existing medical technology from Starfleet. There's, there's just kind of a natural meeting of those two that makes sense to me. And, well, all I'm trying to say is that I legitimately feel that if Vedic Boreal had this exact same accident, you know, several years from now, after Voyager had come back and after that technology was available, he probably would have lived. You know what I mean. Lived longer. <laughs> and prospered longer. Oh, yes, and that is another thing I wanted to bring up. Voyager just started. Caretaker just went live just prior to this episode. So we have officially left the period of time where Deep Space Nine was the only Star Trek on the air. It's a fairly brief period of time. We still haven't gotten to the point where I came back to the show. Now, right now, me and Mum, we would meet up uh, every Friday, I believe it was. And I, I'm not actually 100% sure about that. British was Fridays. In the evenings, she would have just gotten off work. I would usually bring over some food so she wouldn't have to worry about dinner because she worked like crazy. It runs in the family. And... um and we'd sit down and we'd watch Voyager. And I remember watching character and being like, well, that was weird, but I liked the characters. And she's like, yeah, I kind of did do. You want to watch it next week? Yeah, okay. And it kind of became a regular thing for us to get together and watch Voyager, just like we'd watch TNG back in the day. We still hadn't gotten back to Deep Space Nine yet, though. I do have a story for that. Don't worry. We will get there. The other thing I want to talk about is Kai Wynn. Because Kai Wynn is very Kai Wynn in this episode. I already kind of talked about that. But the specifics of it are interesting to me, because... To me, this is still all about her. She has become a bad Type 2 politician. And I know I haven't used that terminology a lot. So just in very brief, a Type 1 politician is a politician who is good at actually maneuvering in political machinations, etc. Um, Vane Solidor. And a bad politician is someone who is selfish, greedy, and self-interested to the point where all they care about is themselves, and thus manipulate the political system solely to benefit themselves and not their nation or the country or the people or creative license, whatever. And that's Kai Wynn. Well, actually, Kai Wynn's not that great of a politician, but it, it is where she is. That's the category she's in. She is someone who is pushing this big, monumental, unheard-of peace treaty between Cardassia and Bajor because it'll look good for her. And her, I know that she never says that, and that is still my interpretation, but everything about the character's performance says to me that this is all about her. She is basically, the idea here, this is again interpretation, is that Kai Wen has already won. She is the Kai, she's the spiritual leader of a people. She's one of the most politically powerful entities on Bajor. But she's still got that greed aspect to her. She's still got that ambition thing going on. And so she wants more. So what's better than being the Kai? 
How about being the guy who broaches peach with Car- peace with Cardassians? Peaches, too. Cardassians love peaches. It's a little-known fact. But that would just be the, the wonderful, another cap in her hat, right? Another medal on her chest, so to speak. I could just see her constantly trying to push the envelope behind the scenes to do, you know, all these great, wonderful reforms so that she is venerated more and more, and so that history books record her as one of the greatest Kais in the history of Bajor, right? Didn't you see that? Now, that is just my interpretation. As ever, I'd love to hear your guys's. But the way she acts about this, about how she needs Boral for this, about Boral is required for the, the sake of this, and, of course, if it fails, she has Boral in case she, she needs someone to fall back on. A scapegoat. Because Kaiwen is incredibly non-diplomatic. Now, we already know this from previous episodes, but she shows this very clearly in this episode. She has no idea how to be diplomatic. Funnily enough, Beryl is extremely diplomatic. He is very good at couching ideas and phrasing things in a certain way that makes them seem more reasonable and makes it, it, he constantly reaches out to the person he's talking to. He does it in this episode. He does it to Bashir in this episode. Where he tries, when he tries to convince Bashir to start doing these experimental treatments, he uses diplomatic tactics to do so. It's a wonderful, subtle little touch to the, to the episode. Because he's like, you know, this is all about healing. You care so much about your job as a healer, as a doctor. This is about my job, trying to heal Bajor. As the Bajor is my patient. He doesn't say this outright, but that is his, that's what he, he, he couches his argument in, is the idea that I am being a doctor too, let me do my job, right? Knowing that that's the only way he's ever going to reach someone like Bashir. It's a nice touch. Um, I also, uh, just as a quick aside... We have no Cardassian prisoners left. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> the, the Also, the idea of war reparations is brought up. And I could be wrong, but I think this is the first time war reparations has been brought up in Star Trek. I'm not sure. Anybody who knows better than me, please feel free to correct me on this. But I find the idea fascinating because it's something that, that's actually a very integral and indeed important aspect of warfare and has been for most of human history. And it kind of stopped after World War II with some niggling details here and there. But, you know, the idea of war reparations as a concept is so ingrained. I'm astonished Star Trek has, to my knowledge, never really covered this idea. Because the Cardassians being willing to have, you know, accomplish war reparations on Bajor, that's, that's actually interesting. Because it makes sense. However, the only reason that the Union would ever agree to that is if the Union got something out of that, either political brownie points or significant increase in influence or a greater, in, uh, a greater presence on the galactic stage or whatever, you know, something in order to give them a reason to bother to have these reparations basically given to the Bajorans. Now, as an aside, he demands reparations back in the form of Cardassian property. I'm actually astonished no one brought up the obvious point here. Deep Space Nine, which is Cardassian property. Like, that's not even debatable. That is clearly of Cardassian origin, clearly of Cardassian side. Civil defense, just a few episodes ago, kind of helped emphasize that point. Anyways, <laughs> maybe that they could actually build a real space station that actually works next. I know, I know, I know. That's actually about all I've got. Like I said, I don't have that many notes about this episode. Some interesting thoughts. I do hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>